Head door of Hope Northeast. This is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am actually re-recording the sermon. If you're listening on the podcast, it's audio only. Some of you might check out the video on our YouTube channel. Uh, but I just gave this sermon yesterday uh, at our live and in-person gathering. Uh, but we had some technical difficulties with the audio cutting in and out, so uh, we opted just so that we had a good, clean recording of it. I'm going to redo the sermon. So. Here we go. Uh, and so sorry if you were listening along and having to put up with uh, with audio. Uh, I think we've got it sorted for next time, but uh, you know, we're all doing the best we can here. Um, so a, a couple of announcements. We made these yesterday. I'll make them again here. Number one is that this past Monday, just a week ago, we had our one year anniversary as a, as a community. Um, our first worship gathering was March 1st, 2020. And uh, two weeks later, we were shut down uh, hard with COVID. Uh, And then we emerged back into sort of house churches and various small groups. And that's kind of been our main mode until this past uh, year, 2021, when we started our first Sunday worship gatherings. Um, It has been quite the year. And if if anyone had told me this was how this year was going to go, these were going to be the circumstances, I'm not sure we would have pulled the trigger on launching this church. Uh, But I'm so glad that we did. Uh, The Lord has been incredibly faithful. We have been blessed beyond measure. Um, Your generosity has been amazing. Uh, The the perseverance of our community fighting and striving to stay together through weird times and different views and all kinds of things. It's just been, frankly, a testimony to uh, the power of God in our midst. And so I'm deeply grateful. I hope you're deeply grateful. We have a lot to celebrate as a community. Um, So we praise God for those things. Um, what we also announced, really big announcement uh, yesterday, was that we have decided to move back into weekly worship gatherings on Sundays, um, effective Easter Sunday, which is the first Sunday of April the 4th. So we're going to have a Good Friday gathering just before that, Friday evening, and then Easter Sunday, April 4th, uh, we will be back towards regular worship gatherings. Um, there's a lot of questions that come with that. We're going to continue to observe uh, kind of the state recommendations for capacity and masks and all those things. Uh, We would love to get children's ministry going up again as soon as possible. Um, So uh, I I probably not for that Easter Sunday. That's probably going to be a family service. Hopefully soon after, it's going to depend on volunteer availability and all those kinds of things. But we're going to begin that process of seeing kind of who we've got willing to, to jump in and serve there. Um, but we're very excited to, to jump in uh, in under a month uh, to re- resume regular worship gatherings. We think it's going to be awesome. And we know there are plenty of people for whom um, it just doesn't feel safe yet. You've got circumstances that might prevent you from coming and being a part of that. We'll continue to live stream our services for, for some time um, until it's safe for everyone to come and, and gather with us in person. Um, but, but for our part, we feel that, man, as the most vulnerable folks in our community are uh, have begun to be uh, vaccinated and, and are going to be soon. Um, we feel like that's that's a great sign and a great sort of marker for our return to a great deal more of normalcy. <laughs> At least we hope that's the case. So excited about that. Um, if you have questions, email me. We're going to be announcing more things and reaching back out to volunteers and all those kinds of things uh, over the next week or two. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Um, but to jump back into the Gospel of Mark, um, for, for this morning's sermon, um, I want to open with a question. And that is the question of where does genuine, a 
authority come from? And I know even to utter the word authority is for, for many people to let the, the hair on the back of your neck kind of raise up uh, to send chills. It's, it's not a hot or popular or comfortable word in Portland in 2021. Um, and more than that, I, I want to acknowledge authority is a word, um, even when you talk about specifically in church contexts, uh, that has a negative connotation and, and in part... Uh, for good reason. I mean, how many high-profile uh, Christian leaders have we just even in this last year seen fall, seen ab- abuse their authority, abuse the trust that was given to them by their congregations or their audiences or whatever for some really heinous ends? Um, it is all too frequent <laughs> that, that in the church authority Uh, ends up being used and abused in a way that dishonors the name of Jesus. Um, So I know there's good reason why when we start talking about authority, people bristle in part. But I'm I'm confident that that the answer to that is not to uh, ignore the concept of authority, not to skirt around it, not to hide from it, but to talk about what healthy and genuine life-giving authority looks like, if there is such a thing. Um, You know, Max Weber, who was a German sociologist in the late 19th, early 20th century, um, he, he identified three types of legitimate authority. You can take or leave his taxonomy. It's not the word of God or whatever. But he said, he, he, he identified three. He says there's traditional authority. That's power derived from respect for sort of cultural or traditional patterns. That's people who, who live in a culture that has traditionally respected something or some sort of office or whatever. Say, so, okay, because this is... This is the culture I'm in. I too am going to respect this. It's sort of imprinted in me by my culture. Second, he sees that there's rational legal authority. So this is the kind of power that comes from legally enacted rules. Think of the American Constitution. Um, When America was founded, there was this document, the Constitution, that was going to govern it. And thus, when we have a new president installed, you can like him, you can dislike him, whatever. Uh, but by and large, people in our country have agreed to the authority that's invested in these offices by our Constitution. We're submitting to that. Um, third, there's charismatic authority, which is not authority or a power that comes from any sort of office one holds or legal document or whatever. It's just the authority that comes with a person's internal kind of personal qualities, their charisma, their likability, their, you know, the people's perception of them as someone worth investing authority in. Um, And as soon as we come to the words of Jesus um, in the Gospel of Mark, which, which, you know, we're midway through the first chapter, and it's not, it's not that it's been that long of a stretch yet, but, but Jesus hasn't spoken yet. And today we're going to get to his words. And as soon as we get to his words and his initial sort of program, the, the central thing that he was about, um, if we're really hearing them for what they are, then questions of authority immediately come to mind. Namely, what gives him the right to say the things that he said? He says some bold things, and the question is, says who? Why should I listen to you? Why should I listen to you, Jesus, over against anybody else? That's kind of the question behind the question that we're going to encounter this morning. So let's look at verses 14 and 15, Mark chapter 1. Verse 14 says, Now after John was arrested... 
Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And this verse gives us basically the start of Jesus' public ministry. And we see a few things established here. First is that John the Baptist, this prophetic frontrunner to Jesus, this guy who was very much in the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, these sort of typically wild people who existed outside the formalized kind of temple worship system, who were appointed by God, inspired by God to come and call people back to faithfulness, to the covenant God had made with Israel. So John is, is operating in this mode, and we see that he'd been arrested. And Mark doesn't give us any other information about that yet. He's going to in chapter 6, so we'll wait till chapter 6 to get there when Mark wants us to get there. But, but for now, we see that the torch has fundamentally been passed from John to Jesus. John always conceptualized himself, John the Baptist, as a forerunner to the Messiah, to the one uh, who God was sending. And, and now uh, <laughs> the passing of the torch is complete as John's ministry is forced to a close. As, as his preaching of God's kingdom has come into conflict uh, with the kingdoms of his, of his day, and he's imprisoned for it. Um, so now it's time for Jesus to step up and, and to go to work. It's this, this passing of the torch moment. Another thing we see here is that Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, which, as we mentioned earlier, was his home region. He's from this little nowhere town called Nazareth, which is in this region of Galilee. And and Mark shows that Jesus is really the whole first half of his ministry in, in the Gospel of Mark takes place in this region. He kind of bleeds just beyond it, but it's all kind of in this region of Galilee here, his home region. Um, but what was he doing? That's, that's the point here. That's where we need to get to. What was Jesus up to as he began his public ministry? Well, as the ESV translates the word, it was proclaiming. The gospel of God. It could also be translated announcing or preaching the gospel or the good news of God. Jesus came with an announcement. He came with a verbal proclamation. He came with words that speak of good news that comes from God. And this is important for us because um, for all the things that the church, the Christian church, is called to be and all the things that the church is called to do, which is a lot of things, we're given a lot of instruction about what we're supposed to be like in the world as a community. But for all those things, like Jesus, we have to keep the speaking of the good news at the center of what we do. And in Mark, even just in Mark in particular, we're going to see Jesus do some amazing things as we go. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to make those who can't walk, walk. He's going to make those who are blind, see. He's going to do like spiritual battle with the demons. Um, he's going to do all kinds of things. He's going to raise people from the dead. He himself is going to be raised from the dead. Um, but but these amazing acts and these miracles, they are given actually their meaning and their significance by the words, by the news that Jesus shared with the world. That the, the content of his preaching was the thing that kept all of these miracles from just being like, wow, that's a weird, interesting thing that happened in history. Um, no, no, his, his, the news contextualizes those and gives them their meaning, their significance. Um, and the church has that same kind of a word central uh, function as well. Um, but as Jesus is, is, is about to give his news, and, and the very next verse that we're going to look at is going to give us the content, uh, the, the kind of summary of that news, um, we have to remember what Mark has been doing up to this point, just to recap. 
Mark has really taken his time. I mean, it's not that many verses, but it's two key stories that Mark has inserted before he records the beginning of Jesus's ministry that really establish the trustworthiness and even, again, the authority of Jesus. Um, first is, is the baptism story, uh, where we see Jesus validated as the spirit-anointed king. The, the, the king, that was kingly language, remember, that was sort of installation of a new administration language that God spoke over Jesus. Uh, but also as the spirit descended on him like a dove, he's the spirit-anointed king. Shorthand, he's the Messiah. He's the prophesied Messiah. And not only that, God declares that he is, that Jesus is his beloved son. He's the unique son of God. He shares in the divinity of God, the father. So, so Mark establishes the authority of Jesus in the most powerful way possible. He's the rightful king. He's the spirit anointed one. And he's the unique son of God. He's transcendent in his authority. But then the very next story that we talked about last week, it, it almost seems contradictory. In fact, like it, it kind of makes no sense at first, at first glimpse. It's that he's, he's those things, yes. But then the story of Jesus's temptation in the wilderness establishes that Jesus is the suffering servant, the, a genuine human who faced himself temptation, pain, and suffering alongside us. And some implications there are, A, that he's perfect in character. He did not submit to temptation. He did not submit to despair. When so many of us, when you and I, when we're tempted, if enough pressure is applied, we cave and we give in. We submit to it. But Jesus faced the temptation all the way to the end and he never gave in to it. He remained steadfast to the Father. But that's not the only thing that story taught us. It also taught us that he was close to us in our sufferings and our temptations. Um, it's this idea that, that Jesus is not, and therefore God himself is not the kind of God who sits distant from us in our pain. But when you are at your lowest point, when you are suffering the, the deepest that you have, he knows what that's like. He has suffered as a person. He has been betrayed. He's been lonely. He's been hungry. He's been tired. He's been sad. He's been killed. He's been beaten. He's been mocked. He's been gossiped about unfairly. And on and on and on. He has come to relate to you in your pain. And so not only is he powerful, <laughs> like the baptism story shares, but he is good. He is um, like us in key important ways and unlike us in ways that are really important as well. And so it's almost contradictory ideas. He's, he's, the, he's the king, he's the Messiah, he's, he's God, the son of God, and he's the suffering one. He's the tempted one. He's the one who subjected himself to everything that we have been subjected to. So these are the claims. So these are the claims that this ancient biography, the gospel according to Mark is making as well as other ancient writings, the other ancient writings collected in the New Testament, the other gospels, the writings of, of, uh, of, of the apostles that we find in the scriptures as well. They, they're all making these similar claims. And I, what I want to, my point for now is don't take these claims for granted. If you've been a Christian for, for much time, 
um, it is so easy you've probably found to let this stuff become old news, to let the scandal of it, to let the weirdness of it, to let the foreignness of it, to let the ancientness of it sort of roll off our backs and we don't even think about it. Like, oh yeah, that's what I believe. That's what everybody believes that, you know, is in community with me, whatever. But this stuff is crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, to, to claim that this, this man in history, this Jewish carpenter, was these things. And, and, and so, so don't take them for granted. And more than that, don't assume that you have really, truly, properly weighed them. Um, these are big claims, the biggest claims anyone could possibly make. And they've come to you, even if for the first time today, whenever you're listening to this or watching this. The claims have come to you that this is who Jesus is. And if this is who he is, then he possesses authority. Authority that we can't even really comprehend or imagine. And, and, and if, if, if this claim is true, and I know that not everyone listening to this is going to be convinced that it's true right now. And that's okay. If you're struggling with doubt, if you're struggling with what you believe, that is okay. We want you to come struggle alongside us. We want you to bring your questions. But nonetheless, these are the claims that are being made. And if they're right... We've got to listen to this Jesus. If they're right, we have to listen. We have to tune our ears as hard as we can to hear what he's saying and to respond in the way that he's commanded us to. So what is he saying? Okay, this is all set up for the content. The content of Jesus' proclamation. Mark gives it to us in the very next verse. Um, We're going to take the phrases in three parts. Verse 15 says, And he was saying first, the time is fulfilled. You get three parts of his gospel, gospel of God proclamation here, the summary that Mark's given us. First, the time is fulfilled. So time for what? What time has come? It's the time of that prophesied snake crusher, the one who was going to crush the snake of the head, prophesied all the way back on page three of the Bible, Genesis 3, that the snake crusher would come. It was the time for the family of Abraham that had been promised. That this promised time when the family would expand in unthinkably broad ways. It was time for the son of David to sit on his eternal throne. It was time for the new creation uh, to be inaugurated. Time for the new covenant to be instated. All these things. Every, <laughs> nearly every promise of the Old Testament was coming to a head in the life and ministry of this Jesus. And, and not only has the time come for all these prophecies to be fulfilled, um, but implicit in this idea is that, that the time of decision has come. The Bible talks about the time uh, immediately following Jesus' resurrection and his ascension to heaven as the last days, the end times, you know, to all, use all this apocalyptic language. We are living in the time between the times, between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, that last period of history where God in his grace gives us time to turn to him, to respond to him. But, but we're, we're at that final stage. There's no other big prof- prophetic thing that has to happen before Jesus comes to bring his kingdom in full. So the time is here. The, this message from Jesus is not only prophecy has been fulfilled, but it's, hey, time is short. You've got to listen and turn to me with urgency. So that's part one. Uh, the time is here. But secondarily, the kingdom is here. It says the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And this is in many ways the heart of the good news, the heart of the gospel. He's saying he is the king and he is bringing God's kingdom. It is close. It is at hand. And um, this means all kinds of things. But in part, what this means is that if Jesus' kingdom has come, it's here in part, it's coming in full in the future. What that means is that we cannot chiefly be aligned with any earthly kingdom. Our earthly citizenship must always be secondary to our heavenly citizenship. And what that means is neither America itself nor any of the political parties that are sort of vying for control of America are where we can place our fundamental allegiance. And I loved, I loved this quote from Esau McCauley, a great author. He wrote the book, Reading While Black. We've referenced a handful of times. Um, uh, just before the last presidential election, McCauley tweeted this. He said, my prayer is that whoever wins should discover that the church is their biggest ally when they do right and their most relentless critic when they do evil, especially as it relates to the most vulnerable. I'm hoping for moral courage and a steady-eyed focus on the kingdom of God. And to that I say, amen. Allegiance to God's kingdom, the fact that his kingdom is at hand, means that we, our allegiance is there. And whenever it comes into conflict with earthly kingdoms, we have to side with God's kingdom. And that means we can't be afraid to critique and to call out um, whatever kingdoms are vying for our attention and our loyalty. It frees us up to pursue him uh, wholeheartedly. Um, And also in this idea of the, the kingdom of God at hand, it means that when his kingdom, wherever his kingdom comes, it means that goodness and justice and beauty and truth, everything good comes with it. When God is ruling and reigning and people are in submission to that rule and reign, it is good news. And that's in part how the whole idea of salvation. Salvation is into his family and into his kingdom and into all of the blessings that come with that. So that's, it's, it's, be, it's good news when God's kingdom comes to bear in the world. That's part two. The kingdom is at hand. There's, one, there's a third thing, part of his message here. And that's the proper response. Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. So there's two commands, two Greek imperatives here, repent and believe. Repent, repentance speaks of a turning from. So we can talk about a number of ways. It's turning from your sin. It's turning from yourself. It's turning from your idols. Um, it's, 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 it's a turning away. And repentance, like authority, is not a popular word right now Um, because it assumes that you need to change. It assumes that you and that I are currently actually in rebellion against God and his kingdom. Whatever that looks, whatever the details of that look like, you and I, in our natural state, we are in rebellion against God, against his values, against his kingdom. And the call to repent is to leave whatever it is that we've put our trust in, whatever it is that we get our identity from, to leave that behind. The second piece of it is to believe. And that speaks of the turning toward. Repentance turning from belief or trust is turning toward. This Greek, Greek verb pistuo, it, it, R.T. France says it conveys more the sense of trust than just a belief in the merely intellectual sense. It's, it's not just... Yes, there's some facts that I assent to. Yes, I think this thing is true. 
but it's actually, in, it, it, it's the kind of belief that changes you. It's the kind of belief that, that antes up in actual trust. I, I love this quote from commentator Christopher D. Marshall. He says, rational belief is essentially involuntary. A person cannot arbitrarily choose to believe on the spot. It's something that happens to him or her in light of the evidence. And just to pause there, it's like, yeah, we, you, if, if you were to come to me and say, I'm struggling to believe this stuff about Jesus, it doesn't do you any good for me to say, well, just believe it. Just believe it. I think right or, or Marshall is absolutely correct here that belief is an involuntary response. It's, it's something that just gets, it's a switch that gets flipped inside of you whenever the evidence compels you. It doesn't do us any good to just say believe. But nonetheless, we can believe something without actually making the decision to trust it without actually allowing it to shape us in any meaningful way. So his quote goes on. He says, trust, however, is voluntary. It's an act of the will. Or again, belief can exist without it immediately affecting anyone's conduct, whereas trust requires certain consequent actions in order to exist. And I think that is what Jesus is calling us to. It's not just belief. Yeah, okay, believe the kingdom is at hand, but it's, oh, <laughs> the kingdom is at hand. Therefore, I'm going to live. I'm going to respond as though this is actually true. It's going to change my life in some respect. And repentance and faith slash belief, um, we can talk about them separately. The scriptures talk about them separately. They are distinct ideas, but they are closely related. I, I think you can intelligibly talk about just repentance or just faith, but, but they really describe, I think here in this context, one coherent action. It's the turning from you yourself, your sin, your rebellion, and turning toward God. It's this, you're, you're, you're doing them both at the same time effectively. Um, and there's another important idea here, really important not to miss, but that, that Jesus declares the kingdom is coming, his kingdom is coming, the kingdom of God is coming. And, and usually, when someone declares a kingdom is coming, the response is, therefore, if you want to be a part of this kingdom, go get your sword, go get your gun. I don't know, maybe go do your push-ups, go get ready, because we're going to take our ground. We're going to do it through violence. We're going to do it through force. Um, and surely that is what all kinds of people would have believed. That was the hope that many had for the Messiah to come. When they read those prophecies, what they the, they filled in the gaps there. They filled in what was unclear by bringing clarity <laughs> to say, when Messiah comes, we're going to rise up and we're going to overthrow our oppressors through violent means. And Israel had been subjugated from, uh, by all kinds of ancient empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, now Rome. All they had essentially been passed around. And, and at the time Jesus came, they were under the thumb of the vicious Roman Empire. And so surely... For anyone who began to hear, oh, the, the, the Messiah is at hand. This John the Baptist guy is saying the Messiah is coming. Oh, this Jesus guy is saying he's bringing the kingdom. Maybe he's the Messiah. Surely what that means is he's going to tell me to go get my gun. In this case, my sword. And notice what Jesus says. He doesn't say, get your sword. He says, repent and believe. He says to, to orient your heart and yourself and your person toward me and turn away from all the things that you are putting your trust in. 
He's, he, he doesn't direct his energy uh, toward the Roman Empire here. He turns, he, he, he says that you've got a problem, you in your heart, you as an individual, you guys as a community. And that's what I've come to deal with first and fundamentally. I love this quote from commentator Alan Cole. He says, what all had yet to learn and what proved to be the hardest lesson for the disciples of Jesus to learn was that the reign of God was not to be a cataclysmic external triumph in the here and now by an earthly Messiah, but a peaceful rule over the hearts of those who responded to the message. Although no reader of the Old Testament could think of it as a purely internal affair. Love the way he puts that. It's not that the rule and reign of God in your heart doesn't have external consequences. Of course it does. It changes how we do everything. And of course it changes how we um, relate to those around us, both our oppressor and those we've been found to be oppressors of. But his point is that the, the coming of the kingdom in this stage, it's not through force. It's through one by one, the people of God and then whole communities coming to bend the knee to the king in repentance and faith and trust and to follow after him and to let our lives be conformed to his life. This is super important. Like your participation in God's kingdom here now, this side of his second coming, it's not, it is not through simple like external things. It's not by watching a church video, you know, on your phone, your computer or TV or whatever. It's not even simply by attending a worship gathering or a community group or this. We think all these things are crucially important, of course. But they're not, there's, there's no external thing we just get to tick off. This is, yep, I'm a great kingdom participant now. Our participation in God's kingdom is the degree to which we are continually submitting in repentance and trust every area of our hearts and lives and minds to his rule. That's what it means. The question this puts to you and to me is, have you and will you continue to bend the knee to King Jesus in every new area of life where you discover that you're not in step with him? That's what it means for his kingdom to come in you and in me. And it's not intuitive. It's not intuitive. It's not what we assume the king is going to be like, but it is what he's like. Okay, so there you go. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus begins his ministry with proclamation of the gospel of God. And it involves a statement of the time, that the kingdom is at hand, and that how you respond to that news, repent and believe. Trust him. And there are all kinds of responses, other responses you can make, other than repent and trust. Uh, you might think this stuff is irrelevant. Um, this might be legitimately. That might be what you're what you're thinking. I, this is mostly irrelevant to me. Whatever, so you can ignore it. Or you might think that all this stuff is mistaken. Like, ah, yeah, I'll check out this Christianity stuff, but ultimately, I think it's pretty much wrong here, here, and here. Um, yeah, I don't, you know, it, maybe there's some good stuff in it we can mine out, but um, but fundamentally, it's mistaken. So you'll correct it. You might think all this Jesus stuff is dangerous. Many people do. Uh, so you'll fight it. You'll oppose it. Or you might think this stuff is interesting or, you know, it's helpful in some way. So you'll flirt with it. 
those are very common responses. And I, I don't assume uh, even that all the folks that are kind of hanging out around and part of Door of Hope Northeast, uh, I don't assume that there aren't people who, who predominantly fall into these categories, even as you're trying to, you know, think your way through it and pray your way through it and explore Jesus. Um, you know, I, I think of my poor wife, uh, Susanna. She, uh, she has to put up with a lot. And I think I've been doing better on this lately. I used to work Batman into my sermon illustrations a whole lot, although uh, I mentioned this yesterday at, at our worship gathering. I have, I have snuck him in every time we do this. Here's, here's my Batman, my little Batman action figure who always is watching over from, from the window over here, perched on the ledge. Uh, but I, it, it's time. We're, we're due for one. We're due to, to bring up Batman. But, you know, my wife, Susanna, she doesn't really care about the details of the new Batman movie. I mean, she, she thinks it looks cool. She's, she's excited to see it with me. She knows I'm excited. She's a good, a good spouse in that respect. She gets on board. Uh, but look, she doesn't really care, nor should she, about what's going on with the new Batman movie. But I do. It's like there have been so many times where I'm like just chattering at her uh, like, like listen Susanna Matt Reeves he's the director of the new Batman movie yeah I don't know if you knew this it sounds like he's really wanted to do like kind of a detective film noir style take on the character and it's going to be like this really point of view driven thing where Batman is sort of like working his way through Gotham's underbelly pursuing a single case it's going to be like Sherlock Holmes it's going to be real gritty I go on and on and on Poor Susanna. <laughs> she doesn't have to care about that. That's my point. There is nothing uh, that forces her that well, she could take it or leave it. But for Jesus, like like the news that Jesus brings is not like the news about a movie or some pop culture thing or whatever. To 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 ignore or to reject or to think uh, whatever about the news that Jesus brought is to miss him. And it's to, it, and if we miss him, it's to miss out on the kingdom that he has inaugurated. This is the claim. It's to miss out on the kingdom that he's inaugurated and that he, he says he's going to bring in full. He's going to actually come and reign as king in the world. It's going to be a renewed world, a new heavens and a new earth it's called, but he's going to sit on the throne reigning as the good king um, and he's going to to so if we miss out on that what the scriptures claim is that we are going to miss out on all genuine goodness and all genuine truth and all genuine beauty and all genuine love and all genuine joy and peace and healing and justice and on and on and on or to Look at it from the other angle. If what he says is true, if these claims that Mark and that Jesus are making is actually true, then then it means that it really is actually true that our sufferings are temporary. Your sufferings are temporary. Um, If we've pledged our allegiance to him, if we've given ourselves to him in faith, then like the universe, we will find it to be good news that the universe actually is fundamentally moral. And I don't mean like moralistic and rigid and all that stuff. I mean that there is a lawgiver who does not look indifferently at all the evil and sin and injustice and violence and grossness that happens in our world. But, but 
actually true justice is going to be done, even when it gets fumbled constantly in our world, one day it will be done. One day it will be done. The nihilists are wrong if Jesus is right. And, and, and not just that, but the future is glorious. It's a good future. And if these things are true, then I can say no to my sin. I can say no to destructive things, even when I desire them, and even when it's really hard to do so, even when it's painful to say no to things and to say yes to things that Jesus is asking me to. I, but I can do it. I can repent and I can trust if all these things are true and that it's not meaningless. It's not some, some bad equation. It's the key to life and the key to lasting joy. So today, the call that Jesus makes to us in this passage is the same one uh, that he made to these Galilean villagers uh, some 2,000 years ago. He, he's saying, because of who he is and what he's brought and what he's bringing and what's coming in the future, he says to turn from whatever it is that's giving your life its ultimate meaning, turn from your idols, turn from your sin, turn from your self-determination, and to turn toward him to believe him, to trust him, believe in the good news of his coming kingdom and the salvation into that kingdom that he offers you, that he bought for you with his graciousness by his own death in your place for your sin on the cross. He says, turn from those things and turn to me and receive what I've already purchased for you. Step into the love that I already have for you and have already displayed for you. Say yes to me. He stands at the door knocking and, and, and come into relationship with me. You know, after his resurrection uh, in Matthew, uh, the passage, the Great Commission passage, Jesus claimed that all authority on heaven and on earth had been given to him. This is the biggest claim a person could make. And it's the one that Jesus makes. And it's good news. If you had all authority, it would be bad for me. It'd be bad for your, your parents. It'd be bad for your family. It'd be bad for your friends. It would corrupt you. And certainly if I had all authority, it'd be bad for you. <laughs> and it'd be bad for your loved ones. It'd be bad for this world. None of us are meant to bear that weight. We can't carry it well. We'd be crushed under it and crush, unders with it, crush others with it. But Jesus, the anointed one, the beautiful, true, wise, good, just son of God, he can carry that weight. So it's good news that he has the authority. So will you trust him? Will you trust him? Count the cost, weigh it out, consider it, consider it hard. Make your choice. And if you've been following Jesus for a long time, make your choice today. What, what new areas of my life might I be able to submit to him? And if you've never done it before, today could be the day for that very first step to say, yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to trust you. I want to repent and believe. Amen? Amen. I'm going to just pray for us to close this out. Father, your authority is not an easy teaching.
And I know for many of us, including myself, there are areas of doubt and struggle and questions, deep questions that we carry, Lord. But we pray, Father, that you would, you would bend our hearts to yours. You would give us the ability to trust you. Give us the ability to turn from the things that we know ultimately do harm us and harm others. Turn from our sin, Lord, and embrace you increasingly more and more with every little small corner of our heart. Help us to trust you. Help us to view your authority as good, as, as the thing that the world needs over and against anything else, Lord, and the thing that we need more than anything else as well. We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you, Door of Hope. Um, we'll see you soon.